Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to digging into this conversation. Thank you, Tamara. It's my pleasure. So I actually want to start with your personal story because I, I think there's a lot of triumphs and also a few hardships in there that I'd love the listeners to hear because I think, you know, we're not alone in these stories and that's important to know. So will you share, will you share your journey? Absolutely. Um, so let me start. I think it's a little bit different than many, although there's probably some that are similar. Um, insofar as I'm the first college educated person in my family. Um, my father was an entrepreneur. He grew up extremely poor. He was born in 1926, which was the great depression. And, um, he, he became an entrepreneur after the army did reasonably well and started traveling. And that was sort of his, um, education, if you will. And he moved down to Costa Rica, met, um, a lovely lady that turned out to me by my mother. And so I was actually born and raised in Costa Rica until I was about 10, at which point it was time to become, you know, like get the education that my father never had. And so we moved to New York, uh, both for his business and my education. And, um, you know, as being the first educated person in my family, he took great pride in it. And it was something that like was a a, a something of pride and distinguishment. And so I went to um, private school in New York City, and then I was fortunate enough to be accepted at Cornell University, so like an Ivy League institution. Later, I got a, a second Ivy League degree, at, uh, graduating from Wharton with an MBA in finance, and um, I used that to uh, go work on Wall Street. That was always my desire. My father was super cool, even though he was an entrepreneur. He didn't pressure me into taking over the family business. And um, I always respected that. And I always look back on that now and say, like, I wonder what my life would have been like right. if I had been sort of like that second totally generation. Totally different. Yeah, totally. And and that's so often the path of the entrepreneur is you build something and you either take great pride in it or you can't sell it and you just pass it down to the next generations. And, you know, my dad was really... Um, cognizant that his dream might not necessarily be mine. And my dream was to like make it on my own and, and recognize that he gave me a great education and was always there for me and um, so on. But like, I wanted to prove my own abilities for myself. And I was always drawn to Wall Street living in New York City and finance and the money that could be made there. And I went to um, Wharton and got an MBA. I was recruited by a firm that's extremely successful called the Blackstone Group. And I was the first uh, associate hired into their uh, fund of hedge funds, which at the time was about a billion dollars. And um, it was the principals, the founders money. They hired myself and a few other people to help them invest in, in a diversified global approach of alternative assets. And basically what that means is I was researching risk and reward, where the most uh, reward would be for the least amount of risk and moving their capital all over the world and in commodities and stocks and bonds and you name it. And um, that went really well. We did extremely well. And I was recruited by a competing firm called Remius Capital Group. I was the fourth person to join there. And um, they had about $100 million of the principal's money at that point. And by the time I left, about 10 years later, 
Uh, we had over 50 people. We were running a portfolio of $4 billion, again, all global. And um, I rose to be co-head of investments. And, um, you know, it was a really exciting ride. I traveled the world. I met a ton of incredible people, including, you know, people that we see and read about, like Carl Icahn and all these billionaire investors. And it was learning from them. And uh, in 2007, as the world started to um, really accelerate into high returns, we started to get a little bit nervous. And um, what we sort of predicted would happen did, in fact, happen in 2008. But given the fact that we were investing in hedge funds, it's quite challenging to move that ship. Um, there's lockups yeah. and illiquidity. And so we weren't able to move um, as quickly as we would have liked, although, you know, we generated uh, less losses and we beat all of our competitors and so on. Nobody likes to lose money. And one thing I learned, and this should be a lesson, you never want to be a co-head of anything in a downsizing environment. That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> there's like two people doing the same job. And so while it feels great on the ride up, on the way down, it's not great. And so um, although we went through rounds and rounds of laying people off and all these people that we had, you know, recruited and begged and pleaded and, you know, brought this amazing team together, um, I found myself in this really unknown and uncharted territory where you have to start to dismantle your baby. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it. There's millions of books written about how to grow a business and how to build a team and how to lead a team and how to do all I have yet to see a book about like dismantling your team. Yeah, I don't know that we think about that. And and so it was completely foreign and unchartered and the markets were absolutely insane. And I just remember walking in and looking at the Bloomberg with my mouth wide open and just could not believe how bad it was and how big the losses were in the market. And in fact, there was a moment um, in in um, at the low where I just was like, I can't, you know, Money is worthless. Everything is worthless. Nothing has any value at all. And so I just took whatever money I had um, liquid and I invested in my kids 529 college plan. It was sort of like it's worthless anyway. And maybe this will have some worth in the future. And it turns out I literally bought the low. So like that worked out. You know, like when I threw in the towel, it was the low. And um, so that was a great return and it's going to be helping their college fund. But long story short, um, after laying off several dozen people in the in the team and going through this hardship, um, I thought I was on the inside track. Um, so I thought you I was, thought you were safe. Well, I thought I was, yeah, I thought I was like on the boat and the boat might be getting smaller and smaller and but smaller. But you're still but, on it. But I thought I was like, you know, involved in captaining the ship. Um, and I was until I got tapped on the shoulder one morning on a Monday morning, first trading day of January 2009, January 5th. And the other co-head and I were leading the um, discussion, our team meeting. We were trying to get everybody to feel like the worst was behind and let's get optimistic. 2009 is a new year. You know, our returns are done. Now think about it as a blank slate and opportunity. And we got past a note saying, you know, our boss basically wanted to see us. And we both looked at, you know, the assistant and said, like, now we're in the middle of a meeting. And she said, yeah, now. And we exited the room. And we looked at each other and we knew we were done. And basically we were dismissed. So I spent eight years of my life building this um, team and this fund and generating these returns and flying all over the world. And literally, like a snap of your fingers, it was over. Um, and to be completely uh, transparent, I didn't see it coming at all. You know, like even though we were laying tons of people off and I saw like all the blood in the streets and the losses and the withdrawals and I saw all that. 
never for a second did I think, you know, like my job is uncertain. Yeah. You know, I think you're not alone in that. I think a lot of people in 2008, beginning of 2009, thought this is really bad, but I'll be okay. Yeah. And then that changed. Well, and I also think, you know, I was co-head of investments and um, I don't know, maybe I took too much pride in that and thought that I was involved in like writing the ship and, but whatever, you know, these things happen. And and I think one of the things that I um, often like to say is, I'm eternally optimistic. So even though we were in crisis mode and things were awful, I I thought I would be okay and I thought I could be helpful in growing and rebounding and so on, right? Like I never I never had that internal doubt or say like, gee, is this my fault or maybe I'm at risk? Um maybe I should develop some of that, but I always try and find the positive. So so you're now out of work. So what do you do next? <laughs> you know, it was really, really the most amazing period of time um, in the sense that there was absolutely nothing that one could do. If you were in finance and you were looking for a job in finance in 2009, it's it's impossible to imagine the frustration. Um, I, I networked like mad. I turned it into a full-time job. I spoke to everybody that ever had recruited me before and all the people that we had invested Nobody was hiring. Well, you know what the interesting thing was? Everybody took the meeting because they they were, you know, previously really interested in speaking with me or encouraging me to come over. So I had all these meetings, but the most frustrating thing was I couldn't even get a no. Because <laughs> I, they, I think they wanted to hire me, but they didn't know if they had a job, or if their fund would be in business, or if their firm was going out of business, or if they, you know, like they didn't know anything. And so, you know, if you're eternally optimistic or you're in sales, you know, a no is almost as good as a yes, because, you know, if you get enough no's, eventually you get to a yes. Right. But I wasn't even getting the no's. And so I was just circling around. And and so what I did was I started to um, I started to run. My dog and I started running down the Hudson River and I'm not a great runner, but we started getting into shape and running longer and further. And I started to think and that was really, you know, sort of cathartic and, and calming. And, you know, I looked forward to it and I started to think and you know, what I realized in that period of time was that um, this was a journey and a process and I was meant to go through it and there was something to learn and there was an opportunity and that the, you know, reliance of other people to take a risk and hire me was sort of cowardly, right? Like that I should, how can I ask somebody else to hire me and pay me, like give me a W-2 if I wouldn't do that for myself, um, it's an interesting I, way to look at it. Yeah, that I should believe in myself more than anyone else, right? Yeah. And so once I started to think about that and, and think about sort of my father um, and, you know, he was ill at that point and we lost him shortly after I launched my first business. But I was kind of like, you know, there's something here. I'm supposed to be thinking about this stuff. And this is an opportunity, again, eternally optimistic. And Ultimately, I decided um, that I was going to take the summer off. I got laid off in January. I networked like mad until, you know, call it May or June and was running and thinking through things. And and by like the summer, I said, you know what? There's really nothing here. I don't know, know exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm going to move out to my house out in the Hamptons and I'm going to take a little bit of time and like think about it and figure it out. And within call it 30 days of being out there, I was committed to, um, being an entrepreneur and what I was going to do. 
Uh, I knew I was going to do something entrepreneurial before I went to the Hamptons, and I had a discussion with my wife, my ex-wife at this point, um, but I had no idea what it would be like. And, you know, that was an interesting conversation where one day she came home and um, I said, hey, I've got really great news. <laughs> and she said, oh, great. And, you know, in like her mind, I'm sure it was like, you got a you job. You got a job, a J-O-B. Right? Yeah, you got a job. That's fantastic. We're going to be okay. And um, she said, okay, well, what what's the great news? And I said, you know, I've decided that um, I'm going to hire myself. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. And she said, oh, uh, and you think the timing is right now? Like <laughs> the world is blowing up. Nobody's hiring. Nobody's spending any money. And, and you think the timing is right now? And I said, well, you know, historically, I've made really great investments and trades being a contrarian, right? Like I sell when other people are buying and I buy when other people are selling and distressed opportunities are really profitable. And so I kind of think right now might be a decent time. And she said, oh, well, I don't know that I agree, but tell me more. What is your company going to do? And I said, you know, that's just it. I have no idea. <laughs> I'll get said, to that part. <laughs> yeah. She said, wait a minute. Like, this is supposed to be good news. You're going to start a company in the worst crisis the f country's ever seen since the Great Depression. And you also have no idea what it's going to do. And I'm supposed to be happy about this. And I said, well, yeah, you know, like, thanks for the support. I really, you know, I'm committed to this and I'm going to figure it all out. You know, I just I have to stop you for a second. You said a few things that I think are so important that I just want to make sure that listeners are paying attention to. One is, you know, you said you had kind of stopped and said, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna sit in this. I'm gonna think about it because this is really is a journey." And it is incredible to me the power of just not necessarily white knuckling it, looking for a solution, but actually just being okay thinking about it and just letting it come a little bit and figuring it out, which is, sounds like a little bit what you did when you said, I'm going to go live in the Hamptons for a little while and just Absolutely. like sit, sit with myself. You know, and um, I just filmed a video. We can get to it a little bit later. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about because half the people or maybe 75% of the people think that I never work. I travel a lot. I'm skiing. I'm doing all sorts of things. And they're like, I don't get it. Are you retired? You never work. And then the people that actually know me really, really well know that I'm working like nonstop, 24-7. And, and part of that working is carving out those periods of introspection and deep thought and not pushing it, right? Like I might go skiing and that's what the world sees. And I may have no thoughts on a given day, but the next day or two days later on the chairlift, I'll have some idea that you know, represents the future for what I'm working on. And, and that is work. For me, that's work. You know, it, it's, um, I did a video on this recently about it. So the subconscious mind is 20 times more active if you shut down the conscious. Like if that's not yelling at you, the subconscious mind can actually get to work. So I'm with you. I just took the dog today for a two hour walk, which I'm sure my neighbors are, because I was working from home today. I'm sure my neighbors are like, does Tamara ever do anything besides exercise and walk her dog? But in all those moments, I really am thinking it's just not at my desk in front of a computer at a cubicle. That's exactly right. And that's the whole like point behind like transcendental meditation and so on, right? It's just to like free your conscious mind from obligatory responsibility and thoughts and linear thinking and just let it be. So I want to now dig into a little bit about what you were just saying about the response you got, because 
Um, I know a lot of us experience this when, whether that's we're going to be an entrepreneur or we just have a crazy idea that we want to pursue. I think oftentimes the response that we get from people who, you know, love us and mean to support us, whether that's, you know, spouses or family or friends or colleagues, um, is surprisingly, I don't know how to say it, mediocre <laughs> at best. I mean, how did you deal with that? How did that make you feel? What did you do to kind of overcome that? that resistance in that moment when you're super excited and the response you get is lukewarm at best. Yeah, I think that that's um, a challenge. It continues to be a challenge and it continues, therefore, in my mind, to be an opportunity um, in the following sense. Um, previously, I really looked for external validation of what I was doing. And I, I had a lens, if you will, as like, uh, a Wharton MBA, a hedge fund guy, married, successful, kids, like That's all quite of those, the profile. <laughs> yeah, like all of these, like all of these labels, right? Like in 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 this turmoil, um, what I recognized was I'm actually none of those things, right? Like that's that's a discrete point, with the exception of being a father. Um, everything else is like a point in time and a label that other people put on me to understand what it is that I'm doing, and. I identified with that, right? So like, uh, I would be less than honest if I said I didn't identify as that Wharton hedge fund guy in 2007 riding a bull market, right? Like that's who I was. But I'm the same person really in the crash in 2009, um, even if I don't have that job, right? Like my mind is the same, my intention is the same, my goodwill is the same, my ethics are the same. Um, and so that label is just a label. And so the answer to your question is I've become much more um, mindful and respectful that like my journey is an individual journey. And as long as I'm finding personal satisfaction and I'm moving forward and I'm doing the things that I want to do in the ways that I want to do them and I'm helping people in the way that I want, I don't need that external validation. And in fact, in my newest like iteration and I continue to evolve and so on, um, you know, what I'm doing is even way more out there and far fewer people get it. And like, I'm okay with that. So talk to me a little bit about what that is. What are you doing? I mean, we talked a little bit offline, but for the listeners, what are you doing now? And if you wouldn't mind sharing the story we were talking about, about the conversation you had last night around it, because it's pretty yeah, funny. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me just bridge the gap for a second so in, and close that loop. So in 2010, I basically launched my very first business. It was called Brilliant Transportation. It's still in business today. We've evolved over some time. But I basically launched the most expensive and the highest end luxury ground transportation business first in New York, and then we expanded to Los Angeles. And so I created the most upscale, like private jets on wheels, I I innovated the whole like Mercedes Sprinter concept, which is now quite popular. But in 2010, I owned the only 10 that were in operation for hire. And like I put all my money into it and I started it up and I didn't know anything about transportation or logistics or operations or chauffeur training or hospitality or anything. And I was just like, there's an opportunity. I know there's people that have money that would like to travel like this. And so I'm going to create it. And so I went out and I did all of that. And, you know, we created a multi-million dollar company. And like I said, it continues to operate today. Um, but that was my idea and I muscled through it and, um, you know, it's very successful and continues to operate. And then subsequent to that, um, I realized I was always involved in real estate. 
through just a bunch of you know random facts i was introduced to somebody who was using their like spare bedroom on airbnb and i thought they were crazy i'd heard about it but i was like no you know real people don't do that and um, as it turned out you know it piqued my interest and i had an apartment that i was renting out long term in new york city and when i got back from that trip um my broker was like let's lower the price it didn't rent and we're missing the right season and if we don't lower it now we're gonna and oh my gosh, I, I, I lived in New York City for many years. I know exactly what you're talking about. The panic of, we, we got to do it right now. Yeah. And so I turned to, um, again, my wife at the time, my ex-wife now, and I said, listen, you know, I just heard about this great thing. I'm sure you've heard about it too, but like a real person's doing it and they're having success and they're enjoying it. And so why don't we like furnish the apartment um, and we'll go ahead and, and uh, list it and, and we'll be entrepreneurs with our apartment. And Again, I was much more comfortable, but she was so frustrated with the the broker and the like lowering the price yet again and whatever. She's like, okay, just don't spend a lot of money doing it. And that sort of launched like the next version of what I started doing, which was I became really uh, involved in Airbnb. We were having a lot of success with it and we started buying properties. I call this my 15 year plan. Um, and in a nutshell, my 15 year plan is I go out and I acquire properties. Uh, in locations that I love and locations that have meaning to me where I want to spend more time. Um, and I buy properties there with a 15-year mortgage. We're at record lows right now, so it's more affordable than ever. And I put them out on Airbnb. And at this point, I have a, a small portfolio of properties that are investment properties that generate income that because I have so many of them, I can't be in any of them more um, you know, than, than my life allows. And so they basically pay for themselves. And in 15 years, I own these outright. And then it's just a perpetual like annuity of retirement income. And I've automated the whole thing. So I have people, you know, working with me and managing the calendars, and we've created, you know, property cleaning teams and so on. And so I've become this entrepreneur, a real estate investor slash business entrepreneur on Airbnb and HomeAway. And that's been going extremely well. So we continue to add properties. We reinvest in new properties. And then about a year ago, I thought, you know, this is working really well. Am I the only one doing this? And um, started riffing with one of my coworkers, who's a younger millennial. And uh, Charles was like, well, you know, we should start educating people on it. And we decided to do that. And so we started with YouTube. And um, now we have the fastest growing channel on YouTube uh, about Airbnb hosting tips and how to be an entrepreneur in real estate and on Airbnb. Um, and it's been just so incredibly rewarding from my perspective to like help people. I get comments every single day like you've changed my life and you've given me an opportunity and I want to be an entrepreneur and I've just bought my second property or I'm going to start small and do what you're doing. Whatever it is, it's just so incredibly rewarding to share the experience that that I have. Um, and so to your point about what we talked about earlier, I uh, tweeted out earlier today that, you know, I was at a meeting last night where there was a bunch of Wharton MBAs. And when they asked me what I did, part partly for the shock value and partly because it's like what I feel most close to right now. I said, I'm a YouTuber. <laughs> and they were like, like what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you, I, it, like they didn't even know where to go with that. They had no idea. And um, what I tweeted this morning was that response tells me I'm on the right path, right? Like there's opportunity here when the Wharton MBAs don't quite get it. That's good. 
what I love about that too is to link it back to what you said earlier, that is really proof of the fact that your identity is coming from the inside, not the outside. And for those listening, I'd really encourage you to think about where your where your identity is coming from because it is a fragile thing if you're not the one who really owns it. And it's if it's so coming true. from the outside. It's so true. And in fact, um, you know, in the interest of full like transparency and being vulnerable and just being out there and I don't know how many people are going to listen to this or where they're going to listen to it. But, you know, another challenge that I had and you, you wanted me to talk about the ups and the downs is um, about a year ago, um, we separated my wife of 24 years, uh, yeah. basically, you know, I guess changed her mind, if you want to call it that. And so we separated and like that was a major part of my identity. If you think a career is a major part of your identity, think about like, you know, your marriage, your, yeah. your marriage of of 25 years as part of your identity. And so like, that was kind of a shocker too. And, you know, it's been about a year and I'm so excited and upbeat and it allows me to do things that I wouldn't do otherwise. Like I'm reinventing, um, how I live and where I live. And, and it's just, it's an incredible opportunity as painful as it is. And I would never wish it on anyone. And like, don't go blow up your marriage just because you heard me say it's great. But, <laughs> but you know, like, I think what many people would do is sort of stay in like the same track that they were on, just say, like, I'm separated or divorced and stay in the same city and stay in the same like job and so on. And so I've sort of looked at it and said, again, well, this is part of my journey. I don't know what the lesson here is, but I'm going to make sure that I pay attention to my instinct. I'm going to give myself the freedom. And so what I'm sort of working on on this, um, again, I own properties in different places, is a, a more nomadic lifestyle. My kids are going to boarding school. Cool. And so I don't have to be in New York City per se. Um, I can be here when I want. Uh, I want to be here for them when they're here. But, you know, I might move out west for a month at a time. And I might go, I'm working on an Airbnb project in Bali. And so there's like things that come out of the woodwork where when you open your mind, and you think creatively and you don't confine yourself to like the lens that you used to know, um, if you if you're bold enough, you can do it. Right. And and like that's where I'm finding a lot of strength and excitement and energy. And so some people, you know, again, looking at the old lens are like, oh, what's Richard running away from? Like he's running away from his old life or from New York City or or whatever. And they couldn't be more wrong. That's sort of like, does Richard ever work? <laughs> What's actually happening is I'm running towards something. God, what a great reframe too for people who are really frustrated with where they are. Because I do think that we're when we're when we're stuck in a rut, wh whatever that rut is, we tend to think of it as how do I get away from that versus what you're saying, which is how do I move towards this, right? Because this is what I want in life. Well, one of them is very passive and, and you're the victim. And the other one is very proactive and you're following your like dreams and, and it's empowering. It's so empowering. So I have so many questions for you and I want to dig into Airbnb a little bit because from the entrepreneurial perspective, I think that's fascinating. Before we do that, I want to ask you one question. You've said that you're eternally optimistic several times, I think, in this conversation. And I'm curious, not just where that comes from, but how you think that's really helped get you are, where you are today and really launch into that more entrepreneurial life and the different stages that you've been through? Yeah, well, I think it probably comes from the fact that 
Um, I was raised in an entrepreneurial home, and my father, like I said, was born during the Great Depression, extremely poor, lost his parents at a very early age, and was basically orphaned and became self-reliant and, um, and was the American dream. He was successful. And so, like, that story, that life, I think permeated through, like, everything that we did was kind of like you can do anything. There, There is no limits or bounds. You know, my father didn't have an Ivy League education. He didn't go work at the Blackstone Group. He just hustled and he was smart and he took risks. And, and so I grew up in an environment where not only was that encouraged, but that was like reality. And I remember 1987, I was in private school. Uh, he had a bunch of investments in the stock market and he had a small business. And he almost went bankrupt when the market crashed. And, and, you know, he, we had a discussion as a family. It's like, listen, things are going to change. We're going to try and keep you in school. You know how much I value your school, but like, there's some really bad things happening. And the crash in 1987 was just enormous. I mean, people like jumped out of windows and, and, you know, it was like, it was a big deal. And, um, you know, I remember watching this man who like worked his whole life and almost lost everything and just said, we're going to buckle down a little bit, but we're going to be just fine. And he never wavered. There was never any doubt. It was just sort of like, okay, well, this is part of the journey. So let's make the best of it. And how do we get through it? And of course, not only did we get through it, but we came out stronger and I'm sure he learned some lessons and he applied them. And so I think that's probably where I get it. And I'm really grateful. And that's probably worth a thousand times more than any Ivy league education or degree. Um, but I think that that's just the lens that I view the world through. And I, I, when, when things get tough, I, I, I'm mindful. A friend of mine teaches mindfulness and I don't have a lot of experience in it, but basically what I took away from it was your mind can have one thing on its mind at a time. It can be negative or it can be positive. You can't think of 7,000 things at once. And so you train yourself, like when you see yourself going to a negative place, identify that trigger, say like, oh, I'm getting negative and redirect and go somewhere positive. Either a totally different off-topic thing for me, or what is the positive learning experience in this negative pain that I'm feeling? A lot of people, when they feel pain, will self-medicate through drugs or alcohol or or go get social Netflix. or do like whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, like whatever your your um, you know remedy is, so that you don't feel all that pain so much. And for me, you know, I don't do any of that. And I actually like, I want to feel that emotion. I want to understand what I'm feeling. And once I've had enough of it, then I say, okay, time to redirect, get mindful, let's get positive. And it works. I mean, it may sound kooky, but it works. Well, and for launch readers out there, what I'm hearing Richard say is it's not that you're looking through rose colored glasses and not clear about what's happening around you or reality. It's how you decide to deal with reality. And I think that's is, is what's so powerful about the story you're sharing is it's not that you're ignoring it or in denial or oh, everything's fine. It's, it's not fine. It sucks. And now I'm going to figure out a solution to make it better. Absolutely. And I think the, the even, even deeper than that, it's like, I want to feel that pain, right? Like I, I actually want to, I, I want to embrace it for a period of time until it's like not healthy. I want the raw emotion. I don't want it like, you know, sugar-coated. Let's just feel what that feels like. And and what do I learn from that feeling? How can I avoid this again? Like, what can I learn from this? And, um, and, and what I find is 
optimism. Like once you can embrace your darkest fears and and lose like identity. Okay, I'm not a hedge fund guy. Okay, I'm not married. Okay, and and say, but you know what? I'm still that really good guy that means well and and wants to educate people and wants to grow a business and be a great father and then you're kind of like okay well nobody can take that away no they, it's so cool and i gotta say i know we're gonna switch over to airbnb and talk a little bit about that but i want to say for those listening like i feel a little bit like my mind's blown in the mindset side of it and that is so much a part of being an innovator and getting out there and making things happen is having the right mindset to be able to do it you're listening to Conversations with Everyday Innovators on With Tamara Gondor Podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors, steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy's CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. So let's, let's flip a little bit. Let's talk about Airbnb because I think it's fascinating what Airbnb, Uber, all of these companies have done to open up the opportunity to be entrepreneurial for the everyday person. And you talk a lot about how you think it's just an incredible opportunity for anyone to be an entrepreneur. Why is Airbnb and what you've been able to do, why, why is that so great for people? So let's just start by saying um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking forward. Uh, that's one of the things that I think has helped me in, in life and in entrepreneurial stuff. Uh, I try and forecast, if you will. And and to your point about being the, having that right mindset, you have to be willing to be wrong, right? Like you have to be comfortable being wrong and you have to, you have to like reward being wrong. So in, in some of my uh, entrepreneurial ventures, I'll have contests with employees and, and reward who's wrong because 
if we That's can't, fantastic. Like, if we can't embrace like taking chances and risk, then you're not innovating. Yeah. Then and you're just staying within the bounds. You are. And I just want to stop for a second because I, I love that you're, you are rewarding people for being wrong. It is one of the things that drives me a little bit bonkers and you see it all the time of, you know, oh yeah, no, we love innovation. We're all about taking risks. But when it's time to actually try something, people, they clinch up. And they don't actually reward or recognize the failures or the things that are wrong that actually help you to get to the good places. Exactly. And so to answer your question about Airbnb and, and Uber specifically, you know, I launched my company uh, at the very high end brilliant transportation in 2010 at or about the same time that Travis launched Uber. And clearly based on market valuation, he was right and I was wrong. Right? So like, <laughs> let's just, hey, let's well, just you know, that. some people let's just nail it. <laughs> yeah. But um, but the point is, what I watched, I had a first row seat in like disruption, consumer behavior changing, entrepreneurialism. And the thing that um, many people may think about, but probably not enough is Uber's not just a convenient way to get from like A to B. Uber has changed consumer behavior and transportation for like ever, right? Like you're going to start to see people buying fewer and fewer cars. There's going to be less and less need for people to live in cities because they could now live further away and some electronic Tesla or Ford picks them up and they can sleep in the car. So once the genie's out of the bottle, it's not going back in and it's massively disruptive. And I think the same opportunity exists for Airbnb. And that becomes like... Um, the way that I think of my properties on Airbnb is that every asset must pay for itself. I no longer have a sunk cost for like a home that can just sit empty or that I must live in. Like I'm I must live in this one home because I own it or um, well, when I'm not using my vacation home, it just sits empty or I'll try and use it right. as much as possible. It's just such a know. waste of space. Really? Right. It's now like I'm, I'm in the process of buying a place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm only looking at places that are legal to be Airbnb'd so that I have any like regulatory risk. And I'm going to spend as much time as I possibly can there because I love to ski and hike and be outdoors. Because it's Jackson Hole. Because it's Jackson Hole, right. But but when I'm not there, I'm going to Airbnb it. And so like my thinking has changed and I'm going to have personal artifacts there, but they're not going to be like, you know, really, really super important or really, really rare. They're going to be sort of like, you know, make my place mine, but also shareable. And I'm going to keep doing that, right? And and so I might be early to this trend, but I believe looking forward that my kids' generation, that's going to be the way they own a home or multiple homes. And the thing that's so great about Airbnb is everybody listening to this podcast has a roof over their head. And even if they don't have a spare bedroom or even a spare like house, they go away. You know, you're going to your aunt's wedding or whatever. Hey, well, why not fund why your aunt's wedding? Exactly. Literally. I, I take two weeks off in August and I go fishing. Okay, well, why is your house sitting empty? Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating to me. But what you're saying is so important around once the genie's out of the bottle, it has changed how we live and our behavior and our expectations. I have friends now who travel, they do Airbnb travel, but they do it with host families. They don't do it when the houses are empty because they love connecting with locals in the different countries that they go and learning about them along the way. It has completely changed how they travel. So on one hand, you've got these entrepreneurs on one side making a living and opening up their home to people. And on the other hand, totally changing how people experience the world. It's completely true. And I just stayed at a, a shared place in Jackson Hole and made a friend and potentially an investor 
like literally, um, you know, I'm writing a book about this 15 year plan and Airbnb and sort of a little bit about my journey and stuff. And, um, you know, I met this person and told them a little bit about what I'm up to. And next thing you know, it's like, well, you know, should we be maybe investing in something together? And, and my new thing, uh, which, which is like, I had never contemplated before. I used to have a partner in my, my wife and we invested in everything together in that sounding board, but I never had external partners. I never raised money in brilliant transportation. I never did a co deal in real estate. And now because of this Airbnb sort of sharing in this vision and, and everything is about like, um, there's no scarcity, it's abundance, right? It's an abundance based model. Um, I've partnered on a variety of different real estate deals on a variety of development deals. And it's just really, really amazing where, again, just opening up my identity and thinking through a different lens and seeing different opportunities, um, it's just leading to more and more opportunities. And that's why I'm talking about this stuff in the book that I'm writing and on the YouTube channel. And it's really resonating. Like we're really changing people's lives, whether I'll give you a great story. The person who does my filming for me, Charles, he does my filming and my editing. Um, and in doing that, he was kind of like, well, do you think I might, you know, be able to Airbnb? And I said, sure. He said, yeah, but I'm on a six story walk up. I said, okay. He said, and I don't have like a spare bedroom. I said, okay. And I'm out near the subway. I said, okay. He said, so would anybody stay there? I said, Charles, you signed a one year lease, bro. So did the people above you and below you and to the left of you and to the right of you. Like, of course people would stay there. And he's like, well, um, do you think somebody would stay in like a fold out couch? I said, yes, yes. at the right price they would. Right, exactly. <laughs> so then he said, you know, one of the things that I'm a big believer in uh, from Simon Sinek is like, what's your why? Like find your why so that when things go tough, you don't just like default to like, well, I'm making money because you could go make money at Starbucks, right? If you wanted to be a barista. But I said, what's your why? He said, you know, I'm getting married, so I'd like to pay for my wedding. I can't afford my wedding. He said, I'm going to do this couch thing and pay for my wedding guess what? He paid for his wedding. He paid for his honeymoon. Now he's saving up for his first property. It's not going to be for the place that he and his wife are going to live in. It's going to be an investment property. And he's a super host and he loves it. And it's like changed his life. You know, it's, I was listening to an interview and I can't remember the, I know it was a Tim Ferriss interview, but I can't remember the name of the person who was interviewing. It's a Silicon Valley investor. And he had said that one of the biggest mistakes he made was passing up Airbnb because and Uber, both of them actually, because he thought, oh, I mean, but something could go wrong. Someone could get killed. You know, like there are weird people out there. But the truth is 99.9% of the experiences are actually really great and people are good. And the whole concept has just opened up new opportunities for a lot. To your point, a lot of people around the world. Yeah. Look, I, I genuinely uh, believe that. And, and I'm eternally optimistic. That said, um, on the YouTube channel, we talk about like signs to avoid and follow your gut and how to know, like, you know, like we're not going to just say blindly, like just accept that everyone's great. There's, you know, there's, there's a method to the madness. Um, I've learned an awful lot. Um, I think I do it pretty well. Lots of people following sort of the same free tips on the YouTube channel are, are doing really well and making more money. And, you know, like one of the biggest tips, I, I just, you know, it comes naturally to me, uh, maybe because I'm an entrepreneur, maybe because I was in finance. But one of the most common mistakes I see is people charge too little. Really? So, yeah. So like if you were running a business and you've got innovators listening to this podcast, pricing strategy is critically important. And yet for 
the person who doesn't really know much about Airbnb or is just getting started or whatever, they've got the wrong metric. The metric that they look at is like occupancy rate. Well, you know, I could price my apartment at two cents and I'd be sold out 365 days a year. Right. Doing all the hard work <laughs> and, and saying like, I'm on Airbnb and it sucks. Like, oh my God, it's so much work. And I made, you know, $7 this year. But that's the common mistake. Um, people just don't know how to charge and, and what to do about it. And so there's a lot of things that um, you can do to optimize this and make it really successful. And in my case, it's led to having, like I said, a 15-year plan with a portfolio of homes and places that are meaningful to me that I like to go and spend time and I want to spend more time. And in eight more years or however many more years on some of these different mortgages, I'm going to own them outright and they're just going to generate like free cash flow and there's my retirement. I love it. So I have to ask, which is your favorite tip, at least that you recently have put on your YouTube channel? I have the one, my favorite of the videos I watched, which I'll tell you in a second, but I'd love to hear what your favorite tip is. The one that you think maybe it's the most valuable or just one that's like, if you do this, it's going to be great. Um, so assuming that people are already hosting, um, I think that the one thing that I sort of gravitated towards early and it served me really well and a lot of people like don't think about it. And then there's also some pushback. So like, I know we're doing something well when there's some resistance to it. And that, and that tip is to ask for the five-star review. And what I mean by that is um, it's community-based and also Airbnb's uh, search engine optimization is based on like the number of five-star reviews you get. They're obviously going to put people that rank better by the community higher up in the search listings versus the people that get like one-star reviews. And yet... Um, a lot of people don't know how important that is. Like a guest coming in from Germany, you know, they, they may not have ever given a five-star review on anything. And for them, a three-star review is like a home run. And so when I, when I communicate with them, um, I, I set the stage and say, look, I really care about you. I really care about your stay. I want you to have a great time. And I hope that I earn your five-star review. And if you feel like I've gone out of my way and made it so that you have a great stay, I'd really appreciate your five-star review. And it's critical that you put that five star. Right. A lot of people You're just, just say like, yeah, a lot of people say, give me a great review. Again, yes. three, three stars was a great review. Well, I used to laugh, you know, because I lived in New York for many years, as we were talking about. And if you asked me on a scale of one to five, the New Yorker would be like a three. And that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like nothing's a five. Yeah, never. Um, so that that's something I think that's really actionable that anybody can do. Uh, it's probably not front of mind, but I think it could have the biggest impact on you having a successful recurring business opportunity going forward. So my favorite one, just so you know, was the, as a, as a Airbnb user, right? Someone who stays is the smart TV. Oh yeah. I thought that if you share that one really quickly, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Look, I think, um, in today's world, having uh, a smart TV, well, first of all, I don't think they make TVs that aren't smart, but I think it's really important. That's another tip that I say is that, you know, there's certain amenities that are important and certain ones that are less important. And I think a lot of people spend money in the wrong places, but like call your cable provider, call files, call whatever, spend $19 more on getting high speed internet so that you can have a smart TV that streams Netflix and YouTube and all of these things that people are using more and more today. And if you have to cut the cord and save $139 on cable, like that's okay. But whatever you do, just make sure in your description of your property, you're really, really clear because you don't want somebody who wants to watch like the football game and it must be on ESPN staying at your place. That causes a problem. 
right? So that's another tip that I suggest, which is whatever your weakness or your liability is or whatever you like, you know, are uncertain about, don't hide it. And if possible, turn it into a positive, right? That eternal optimism. So for instance, if you have like, there's somebody asked a question on our YouTube channel the other day. It was like, I have a cat. Uh, what do I do about that? And I said, well, definitely make sure everyone knows you have a cat. But more importantly, why don't you advertise your places like for cat lovers? Right, yeah. Get, get your Great tribe idea. there, right? Like your tribe there with the cat, they're going to give you a five-star review because they love your cat. The wrong person who's not sure about cats or was surprised about cats would be like two stars. Right. <laughs> They'll be mad when they get there, actually. So. I love it. That's that's great. I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the 15 year plan. Will you just, can you give us a highlight of what that's about and how you think about it? So I, I very um, high level, I started to realize um, a while ago, probably uh, as I lost my job and thought about income and, you know, being an entrepreneur is very variable. You can have a good quarter, a good year, a bad year, a good business, a bad business. Um, and I started to realize also that you know, because of advances in, in medical science and in health and in wellness and nutrition, we're all living longer. And so the combination of like uh, variable income and longer lifespan, I quickly looked at this and said, I don't want to work until, you know, I die. I want to make sure that I'm healthy and fit to do the things that I want to do. And so I started to think about opportunities. And, and that's, you know, again, I got paid handsomely at the Blackstone Group and at Ramius Capital Group to look forward and find opportunities, the best risk adjusted reward. And I quickly came to and quickly, you know, these I, I say quickly, probably when I had the idea, it was quick, but it could have taken a year of that sort of like, is Richard working and he's sitting yeah. on the golf? Yeah, like he's on the, you know, he's on the chairlift. I, it came to me that I need to have some steady stream, diversified income, um, that could also appreciate in value, like the homes could appreciate in value, and they generate, you know, income every day, every week. Um, and then I was thinking about, well, I also want to enjoy these places and what my why is. They have to have meaning to me. So when, like, for instance, I have a home down in Alabama in Mobile Bay, and Hurricane Nate just came and trashed the pier in the boathouse. If I was doing this for the wrong reasons, I'd be like, forget it, sell, I'm out. But you know what? Like, I really like that place. I enjoy spending time there. I'm going down there in a couple of weeks, even before the hurricane, um, to just like think. And so I came up with this idea that if I had enough of these properties, if I could reinvest the income um, and pay them off in 15 years, that at a certain point, that's like the retirement fund right there. Um, and it's just a, a, a great fortune that we're at the lowest time in uh 15-year mortgage rates. We're going into a rising rate environment. I like the fixed uh, mortgage. If you're going to go out and take one, I recommend taking a fixed one right now. Um, and even though we're at all-time highs in in um, real estate, we're at all-time highs at the stock market. And I think that there's more risk in the stock market than in the real estate market. So I'm quite comfortable with that. And the thing about real estate is like you can affect the outcome. I can make it short term. I can make it long term. I can sell it. I can fix it. I can expand it. I can do whatever. There's not much I can do. I mean, as many Apple devices as I buy, I'm not really affecting the Apple outcome. And um, this is sort of like entrepreneurial. I can control the outcome. I have a say in the destiny. And at the same time, I'm looking at it far enough forward that like any given week or month or quarter of income doesn't really matter because my why is 15 years forward when I own these things outright. Mm. 
I, I love the long-term vision of it. And I would also add to that, that you're doing it by tapping into a market that, that is h- how we are living now. So to your point about Uber and Airbnb earlier, we're, we're going to be doing that from here on out. And we're going to be staying in these places and sharing our homes and rent, you know, using our cars as income. And that that's here to stay. That's not a trend that you're just jumping on to only have to jump off of. No. And, and by the way, I think we're in the very early stages, right? Like even though everybody's heard of Airbnb, um, very few of the people that you actually know are hosts. And some percentage of the people you know have stayed in an Airbnb maybe once or twice. But the, the theory that I have is that everyone you know is going to be a host at some point, And everyone you know is going to have stayed in an Airbnb at some point. And so if you think about like the growth there, it's many acts. It's multiples. It's not like, oh, we're, you know, the eighth inning and there's two more, you know, one more inning to go. Do you think that's just because it hasn't spread yet and it's still with the early adopters? Or is it there's some type of hurdle that we just haven't gotten over yet? Well, I still think, look, I I still think it's early days um, like Uber faced the following concept. You know, I live here in New York City. I'm in ground transportation. And I remember, you know, in 2012, 2013, people would say, I'm not getting into a random person's car. There's no chance. And like, if you ask them, would you put your kid in there? They were like, no way. And I I wrote a blog um, probably two years ago that really got a lot of distribution in the limousine and ground transportation space where I said, you know, my kids just had their, I don't know what it was, 13th birthday party or whatever it was at the time. And no parents came to pick up at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> Instead, every single kid Get pulled out, out their phone really? and they all called Uber, literally. And like, for me, that's when the light bulb went off, which was like, wow. oh my gosh, how crazy is this? Like, Every single teen did it, not one or two, every single one. And those kids aren't changing. They're not going to say like, I'm 15, let me go buy a car and I'd like to have this beater car and drive it. Like they may never learn to drive, literally. I mean, you know, some people will need to drive and they live in remote places or they'd like to drive. But there's a concept here that if you're in an urban environment, like you may never ever learn to drive. So- I mean, really, it's like that aspiration of, you know, I need to own my own home outright. This is my home, my space. And, you know, I I know I've arrived when I own my car and, you know, it's my thing and I can drive everywhere have kind of been stripped away. Right. But so now imagine this concept. Not that I need to own my own home um, to to, you know, lay claim to like my territory or my nest. How about I'm going to live rent free? Right. Like, yeah, it's going to actually generate income. Yeah. Somebody else is going to buy my house for me. In fact, I'm working with a a fraternity brother of mine and he was listening to this and he was like, you think I could rent out my place? I was like, yeah, you travel, you vacation. Right. So he went and and started experimenting the summer and he's also divorced. He has half custody of his kids one week on one week off. And on his week off, he Airbnb his home and took those proceeds and traveled somewhere he wanted to go. Like he listened to exactly what it is that I said. He came back and he was like, Richard, you've changed my life. My lens is completely different. I can't believe that somebody else is going to pay me to go travel and do what I want to do. It's incredible. And I hope for those people listening out there that, that you are as inspired as I am to really rethink <laughs> your strategy for how you use the things that you own and the possibility for actually being an entrepreneur and making money off of the things you already have. You don't even have to create a new business. 
that's the beautiful thing, right? Like I said earlier, everyone has a roof over their head. Even if you don't have a spare bedroom or a spare couch or, you know, Charles has a six floor walk up and he went and he spent, I don't know, $800 on a fold out couch. And yeah, his life's changed. He has sometimes has a, a guest in his place. But you know what? Basically lives rent free. Well, and to your point, right, the, it's, you have a long term vision of 15 years. So if you look at the long term vision of what you're trying to accomplish and your why, being not in your home, not being in your home for a couple nights every now and again is totally worth it. And I think one thing that you pointed out and, and it bears mentioning is one of the advantages that we had when, when I was a hedge fund investor was that we had long term money, right? Like people locked up their money with us. So it allowed us to look forward and make longer term bets. And the most successful person that I've ever known uh, who has that forward-looking vision is Jeff Bezos at Amazon. The only reason he is so successful, besides being brilliant, is the fact that he was able to convince Wall Street that his vision of like not making any money could go on like for years, decades, in order to like own the monopoly. But before him, everyone else was managing to like the quarter, right? Like we need to turn a profit now. And if he was managing to the quarter. Amazon would be a small fraction of what it is today. But because he had this long-term vision and he bought himself that runway, and even though there was a lot of skeptics and naysayers, he just kept to it. He's built like, I mean, he's transformed the way that people will shop forever. He has. And, you know, with the recent purchase of Whole Foods, it's going to change food and food delivery and how we get our food. And I mean, it's just incredible what they've done. It's amazing. Yeah. And again, you know, it, it comes back from having that different lens, buying yourself time, convincing yourself that you are right. And like you can t if you're wrong, it's OK. But like going out there on that limb and innovating and, and not just doing what Wall Street says, you're a public company. We need quarterly reports. You know, how many quarters in a row did he report losses and he didn't care? Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, the other thing I'd say for the for launch shooters out there that I'm really loving about this interview is that, um, you know, we look at uh, the cover of Fast Company or Inc. magazine, Success Magazines, and we see the 20 year old with a hoodie and we're like, that's an entrepreneur. I have to, aspire, I, <coughs> excuse me, I have to aspire to that, right? I have to, you know, come up with some disruptive technology that's going to, you know, be game changing and blah, blah, blah. But you don't have to be what all those other things are to be an entrepreneur. You can use what you have and create a really good life out of it. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it all leads to a variety of different things. You know, some of the detractors in, in my story will say, well, you know, he was successful before and that allowed him to do this, that or the other. And that's why he can do YouTube. And, you know, OK, fair enough. But you know what? Like I hustled to be successful. Right. This wasn't like, a, you know, I just was born into this and it is what it is. It was like, no, no, no. I busted my butt to take care of that and that and that and put myself in this position. Well, my argument to that, too, is twofold. One is, first of all, isn't it the American dream to be able to have the the resources for yourself and for your children, right, for your legacy so that they don't have to suffer the way you did or so that, you know, you can do the things that you'd like to do. So to me, there's absolutely nothing wrong if you start with a little bit of resources and you turn it into more because you hustle. The second thing I'd say is there's a lot of examples out there of people who came from nothing as well. So it's all possible if you believe it. And where you're starting is it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's not the whole story. No. And I think the the last message that I would leave with people is we're so um, unaware of the fact that 
we have a lens, right? Like think of a contact lens. Each of us, each one of us has a contact lens in and we don't see it. We don't even know it's there. We're like, we don't realize it. But imagine taking those lenses out and putting a different lens in, um, an entrepreneurial lens, a risk tolerant lens, a risk loving lens. Like one of the things that I think differentiates me from a lot of my friends and family and so on is like, I actively seek and embrace risk. It's a competitive advantage for me, my relationship with risk, right? And yeah. and now that I know that, I can actually embrace it. It doesn't mean like I'm a gambler. I don't even gamble at all. It just means that the kind of things that scare people away, I'm attracted to. And I find opportunity in that. And it's such a powerful place to be because you're willing to go where other people won't. And generally, there's opportunities, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's the beautiful part. So, so I, I can't even believe we've gone so far over, but it was such a good conversation. Where should people go to learn more, connect with you? So you can go to um, my website, which is www.richardfertig.com, which is sort of like a, a landing page. It'll point you to all the different things that we do. I also write for uh, Forbes, and I've got this YouTube channel and a few other businesses. So I think that's a good starting point. But Probably the most um, relevant place if you really want to get started on this Airbnb, whether it's like just getting started or improve it or even grow it. We have a lot of people that you know have multiple properties that pay attention to what it is that we're talking about. Um, is go to our YouTube channel, which is uh, Short Term Rental Secrets. Awesome, so and we'll, YouTube, put a, we'll put a bunch yeah. of those links in the show notes too, so people don't have to pull over while they're driving and try to write it down. That's a great thing. Yeah. You don't want people to see, but like in a few years, you'll be like in an electric That's Uber. Right. I and, won't have to and, say that anymore. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what, my last question for you is what's the one thing people would be surprised to learn about you? It could be hobby, passion, experience. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if they would be surprised per se, but maybe it'll get some excitement. Uh, I'm a really, really avid skier. Um, I love to ski steep and extreme stuff. And, you know, we talk about risk. It's the kind of thing where... Well, no um, wonder. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I just love skiing. I love being outdoors. And um, I'm really excited to go to Jackson Hole, which is considered one of the most extreme and best ski areas like in the world. And I'm planning on skiing, I think it's like almost 60 days this winter. Do you have a favorite place? Uh, to ski in Jackson? Yeah. Or no, in general, just around the world. Um. Well, I was born in Costa Rica. It's special to me. I absolutely love it. I spent, um, I did a 55-day epic tour this summer, and the highlight there was um, the 30 days I spent in Bali, and that actually led to a development site. So now I'm working with partners, and we're developing an eco-village, uh, wellness, health, spiritual, agriculture, like amazing, right? And um, again, it's like, you got to go and you got to open your mind. And it, I've never done an international deal. I've never done a partnership before, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't. And now I am. Well, that goes into your whole leaning into risk, doesn't it? Yep, exactly. Well, Richard, thank you. I feel like we could talk on and on. So we're going to have to have you back and dig into all the questions I couldn't get to. But thank you. This was this was an incredibly insightful conversation that I know our launch readers are going to get a ton out of. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time and your readers or listeners time. And I'd love to come back. So and if you have any questions, anybody, 
come over to the YouTube channel, post a comment, join our Facebook group. There's tons of really smart people that can help us all. Do you want to say what the YouTube channel is really quickly? I think I accidentally cut you off saying show notes. So say what it is so we, we don't miss it. Yeah. So the YouTube channel is uh, Short Term Rental Secrets. Okay. Got it. Excellent. This was fantastic. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.